who's chair of the Department of Philosophy at Gettysburg College. Professor Gimbel's chief scholarly interests have to do with the philosophy of science and with the philosophy of physics in particular. Uh, his books include the following, Exploring the Scientific Method, Cases and Questions, Rene Descartes, The Search for Certainty, Defending Einstein, Hans Reichenbach's Early Writings on Space, Time and Motion, 1920-1926, and The Grateful Dead in Philosophy, Getting High-Minded About Love and Hate. <laughs> recent book is Einstein's Jewish Science, Physics at the Intersection of Politics and Religion, which shares the title with the lecture that he's going to give us this evening. Please join me in welcoming Professor Steve Gimbel. Well, thank you, everybody. I want to thank Jeff for all of the hard work setting this thing up. I'd also like to thank uh, Crystal Ebert, who worked for the college until three days ago, right before I came. <laughs> but I do have a, a book out called Einstein's Jewish Science, which is an odd phrase. It was a, a phrase that was actually coined by a group that called themselves Aryan physicists. They were Nazi sympathizers between the world wars. And the thesis of the book and the, the, the topic I want to talk about today, any place else would be exciting and interesting. What I love about coming here to St. John's is that the basic idea will be completely banal and boring. And that thrills me to no end. And I could stand up here and bore you for the next several. <laughs> I hope you're right. We think of ideas everywhere else but St. John's as belonging to these little countries, right? These disciplines, right? Everywhere else we have departments, and departments own ideas, right? And should an idea migrate across a border, well, we all know about illegal aliens and horrible things they do when they penetrate, right? I mean, I used to actually teach across the street for a little while at the Naval Academy, and the philosophers there were not allowed, allowed, to talk about the ideas of John Locke. The ideas and thoughts of John Locke were owned by the political science department. <laughs> Now, anybody who knows anything about John Locke, the idea that his ideas would be property to be owned should strike you as a little bit ironic. But it's a concept that actually is out there, that we do find ourselves segregated intellectually into these Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I'll go get some more. But oh. you're fine. Can I be heard? Yes. Apparently, my batteries are failing. Uh, so the idea here is that you know traditionally we think of ideas as belonging 
to one of these little sort of duchies, one of these little areas, and that the people who think of them, the great minds, came from departments, came as intellectual lone rangers in their own little boundaries, their own little place. But of course, that's not the way it really happens, right? People have lunch. And when you have lunch, you like to have lunch with somebody else. And when you have lunch with somebody else, generally you talk to them. And so what happens is that these ideas cross boundaries. And that the people who have the ideas don't have just singular interests. Physicists aren't merely interested in physics. Some of them are, but you don't want to have lunch with them. Right? <laughs> Most, not all physicists. I love lunching with physicists because they have large grants and tend to buy. <laughs> I'm a philosopher. So the idea is that when you look at where ideas come from, you can't just look at the derivations of an equation. You can't just look at the field in which we standardly put that idea. You can't just go to a bookstore. For the younger people, we used to have these places where you could buy physical things called books. And they had sections. And okay. So the idea here is that when we look at where our physical theories come from, the roots of them are actually coming from a number of different places. So when we look at this Nazi claim that Einstein gave us Jewish science, we like to get discounted, right? I mean, the Nazis were just merciless propagandists, right? And why did they call it Jewish science? They called it Jewish science in order to undermine strong support. Right? The idea being that everything is conditioned by race and blood, which for them is the same thing. And that what we do when we do science ought to be done in a particular way, a particular way that it had always been done. They saw physics changing, and they didn't like that change. And so they were trying to change the tide so that it went back to how it previously had been. Now, they claim that Einstein's theory of relativity, and we'll talk about the theory in a little bit more detail later, was influenced by Einstein's background. Right? They saw this Jew changing the way we thought about space, time, matter. But he wasn't just a physicist. As we'll see, he was an incredibly political person. And that's what they were afraid of. Now, we like to separate, in our nice, tidy little way, physics from politics. Right? Seems clean. Seems like there would be no way to blend them, right? I mean, what do they have to do with each other? Well, let's turn away from physics for a minute. Let's think about biology. Let's think about the theory of evolution. A little bit political? Strangely, yes. Right? No longer are we in the 19th century, but yet it's still highly politicized, right? In the same way that we see the theory of evolution right now being a central political question, in addition to being something that professional biologists play with. That was the case with relativity back in the 1920s, back 
when it first really started to gain widespread acceptance. So the idea that that it would be Jewish science is roughly the same as calling evolution liberal science, which is a claim that you hear and a claim that to some degree has to be answered. Now, one way to answer it would be to go the root of everybody else. Well, look, it would be absurd to call it Jewish science because science has nothing to do with religion. These are separate spheres. Look, we have religious studies departments in this building, and we have our physics department over here. They're so different. Well, we started off by saying we have a problem with that view, right? And now if we look back historically, turns out that the two were actually deeply, deeply interwoven, right? And a few of you have been working through Rene Descartes, meditations or discourse. You get a few head nods. Okay, let's play with Descartes for a minute, right? Because what we're going to find in Einstein, his general theory of relativity is a theory of gravitation. Gravitation is a wonderful thing. Now, the first major theory of gravitation that we get, well, we get one from Aristotle. Does something really interesting. For Aristotle, right, we actually get the way we think of the world reversed, in the sense that we were talking about going to lunch. If you go to lunch with a physicist and a chemist, it's very clear very quickly who the big brother and who the little brother is. Physicists look at chemists as engineers, which is an insult when it comes out of the mouth of a physicist. Right? The idea it's just applied physics, right? Chemistry is just applied physics, but this comes from our modern notion of atomic theory, right? Aristotle does something interesting, he flips it over, right? For Aristotle, the chemistry comes first. Right? That is, the natural state of motion is determined by what the thing is made of. Now, this is a very nice bottle of water, which was contractually obligated, but presented in good faith to me. If I were to unscrew the cap and turn over the bottle of water, what would happen? This is the easy one, we'll get harder. It will spill on the floor. Why? Because the water inside right now, according to Aristotle, is very anxious. <laughs> it doesn't like being here because where it is is unnatural. It wants to go to its natural place. And its natural place is very close to the center of the universe. Right? Now, if I had, well, here's a piece of schmutz, right? If I take dirt and I drop it, what happens to the dirt? It goes straight down, just like the water, right? Earth, and by Earth, we don't mean the planet, we mean soil, right? Goes down. I get a government grant for that, right? Earth goes down, water goes down. You mix Earth and water together, what happens? You get mud, right? But eventually, the soil separates out, right? And the water is on top. The bottom is the sandy earth, right? Or else all of our oceans would be underwater. 
right? This was Greece. They knew there was water. They knew there was earth under the water. So clearly, the earth is at the center. The natural place of water is outside, right? And then similarly with air, you go underwater, you exhale. Where do the bubbles go? Straight up, right? If I had a lighter and I were to flick it, right, the flame would go straight up. And if I turn the lighter over, what happens? You burn your thumb. Don't do that. Right? Why? Because the flame wants to go up, because it's natural place. So chemistry determines its natural place, which determines its natural motion. And for the four earthly elements, right, it's straight line motion to its natural place where it will remain in rest. That was originally what we had, and it wasn't really a theory of gravitation, because you don't get anything about attraction, you just get all things having natural places, and it's an internal drive that moves them there. The first time we really get a theory of gravitation, when you get something from Harvey, which is basically a, a version of uh, magnetism, but the first time you get a really big scale, universal picture of gravitation is from Descartes. Now, Descartes' picture is fascinating. In part because where it comes from, it's clever. It's incredibly clever. And it's even more clever if you know why he made it the way he did. Now, what are the fundamental phenomena that he has to account for? You gotta remember, Descartes is writing really when the scientific revolution is really chugging along, okay? He's a Copernican, which means he's gonna deviate from this Aristotelian Ptolemaic picture where the earth is at the center and everything else goes around. He wants to say that the earth goes around the sun. Now there's a problem, right? A generation before Descartes, somebody else said that. Somebody by the name of Galileo. Now Galileo and Descartes were about as different as they could be. Okay? Think Felix and Oscar. Okay, for those of you who are younger, please. Right? So you've got the odd right? You've got the one who's bold and brash. That was Galileo, right? And I don't want to rehearse the whole story, but the idea is that Galileo said it, and he got in big trouble for it. And they told him, don't say it again. And he said, okay. And then his best friend became the Pope, and he thought he had protection. So he said it again. And he was wrong. And he got in even bigger trouble. And he still was allowed to live, but only barely. Right? And so then you have Descartes. Now Descartes, Right? For Galileo, right? I mean, the, the classic story of Galileo, and it's, it may be entirely apocryphal, but we all love it so much, is that, right, when he's before the Inquisition the second time, right, remember what Galileo is charged for. He isn't brought up on charges. He isn't brought before the Inquisition because he says the earth goes around the sun. His crime was saying the earth moves. Right? There was a papal bull. Right? It was studied by uh, theologians in the Catholic Church and determined that it must be the case, right? You know, from Aquinas on forward, where Aristotle becomes doctrine. Right? Again, we're back to politics. Okay? Becomes doctrine that the earth is at the center of the universe. 
right? And that the Earth can't be moving. And naturally, you know, it's, it's not only doctrine, but look, if the Earth was moving and I poured the water, how should it go? Well, if I pour it outside of my car window, it should it would look like it's going diagonally, right? So if the Earth is moving, when I pour the water, it should look like it's going diagonally, right? But it's not. So clearly, common sense tells you the Earth isn't moving, right? So the idea here is that there is this claim, and this is the big one, the Earth does not move, right? Galileo was made to recant, made to promise not to write again, and at the very end, just as the hearing is concluding, he mutters something under his breath. What does he mutter? What is he Yes. <laughs> Yet it moves. What'd you say? Huh? I didn't say anything. Right? That was Galileo, right? I mean, he was just, he was the sort to put his finger in the eye of authorities. That was just his nature. Galileo is a troublemaker. Descartes is the opposite. Descartes is that kid who never, ever gets in trouble and always wants to make sure it works that way. Descartes knew that his sense could get him into big trouble. And so what does he do? He leaves France and he goes to Holland. Why Holland? Yeah, Holland is Protestant. He's not going to get in trouble for contradicting the Pope if he's living in a Protestant country. We're back to politics, right? Now, it gets even better because not only is he going to do his writing in Holland, but he moves roughly every four weeks to a different location just in it gets better because on every single one of his letters that he sends back to people in France, he puts a false return address. This is a paranoia. Right? He knows what he's doing is dangerous. But on top of it, he's deeply committed to Catholicism. He's a Catholic. So he's a Catholic. And if you're a Catholic, and the Pope says the earth does not move, what are you going to believe? Here it doesn't move. And yet, he's a Copernican who believes that the Earth goes around the sun. Oh, yeah, yeah. He wouldn't say that he was Catholic. <laughs> so the idea is how do we square this circle? How do we get the Earth to go around the sun and yet have the Earth not they seem contradictory, right? They can't both be right. The Pope says the Earth doesn't move. The Earth doesn't move. Well, what does it mean to move? Ooh, theologians didn't give us that. Ah, what does it mean to move? Okay. Did I just move? Mm -hmm. Oh. Now, why did I move? Well, you say, I was over here. Now I'm over here. And I say, but I didn't move. You guys shifted that way. 
Which one of us is right? Well, like, clearly, there's a whole bunch of you. There's only one of me, right? If we did it democratically, we'd be able to hide. Like, we'll move it, right? Let's go to the, you know, the airport. You're all one of those people movers, right? Are you moving? You see the guy sitting at Cinnabon going that way. He sees you going this way. Which one of you is moving? Maybe there's a way out of this. Maybe all motion is relative. If motion is relative, then, you know, is the Earth moving or not? Well, moving relative to something. This would be a promising way out, except that, look, when the Pope says the Earth doesn't move, he doesn't mean it's not moving relative to something. He means it's not moving. All right, so that way it's not going to work out. But there's something there. Something there. Moving. It has to be motion with respect to something. With respect to what? Well, it can't just be chairs in a room, right? What am I moving with respect to? Well, look, this bottle is in a particular place. I have changed my location relative to that place. Place. Now we're getting someplace interesting. Right? Because let's think about this. What is the fundamental attribute of things? What makes a thing a thing? Ooh. So, I have invited, come on up, my childhood invisible friend Bob for an experiment here today. Here's a question, back to back. Which one of us is taller? Well, you can say it's okay. Years of therapy. Bob doesn't exist, right? Bob doesn't exist. What doesn't he have? A height. To have a height, you have to exist, right? Distance, he thought. Extension is the hallmark of existence. This key, this or this piece of paper exists. Why? It has a size. Anything with a size must be real. Right? So all real things are extended. Like my credit card is over. So the idea is that anything with size, anything with distance, with area, with volume, has to be real. Ooh, now we're getting someplace. So now let's talk about the distance between my, the tip of my nose and the tip of his nose. We can measure that, right? Well, if we can measure it, it has a limit. If it has a length, it must be real. Space must be a thing. Why? Because it has extension, which can be measured. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere. So space is a real thing. If space is a real thing, now Descartes, one of his fundamental presuppositions is that everything works mechanically. The only way for something to move is to have it pushed or pulled or twisted, right? I mean, let's move this chair without touching it. Ready? Everyone concentrate on it. We're going to move it forward. One, two, it's not going to move. Right? In order for it to move, what has to happen? You have to push it. Right? So if we look at things in space, we look at planets going around, we look at water bottles falling towards the Earth, there must be something pulling on it. Well, what is it? It must be the space. Space moves things. Ooh. 
So think of a leaf on a river, right? It's flowing, it's moving. Why? The water's pulling it. Now we're getting somewhere. Okay, so what kind of motion are we dealing with? We're dealing with circular motion. And we're dealing with straight line motion. Ooh, where do we see that? Where do we see that? Suppose I had a great big bathtub. And I pulled the plug. What would happen around the drain? Yeah. Right? You get that vortex. Now, if I had my rubber ducky, and I put it here, and it got caught in the vortex, how would it move? In a circle around the drain. Ooh. And if it got too close, how would it move? Straight down the drain. Straight in towards the center. Ooh. We got something here. Space is a real thing. Space moves. Space moves the things in it. All things that have mass are going to cause these vortices around it, which cause circular motion. So why does the Earth move around the sun? Because it's caught in the vortex of the space stuff caused by the sun. Why does the moon move the way it does? It's caught in the vortex around the Earth because it has mass. Ooh, okay. We gotta work in theory, right? And if something gets too close to the Earth, how's it gonna move? It's gonna move straight down, right? Perfect. Except, it's moving! Ah. Moving, moving. So motion, motion. Now, why, when I'm here, as opposed to here, have I moved? Well, here, I'm surrounded by this space. Here, I'm surrounded by different space. If I move from one part of space, and space is a thing, to a different part of space, I've changed my location. I've moved. So a change in place over time is real motion. Ooh. But now when something has mass, it creates a vortex. A vortex. What's that going to do? Well, if we have conservation of space, right? Space, the amount of space doesn't change. So you have this vortex, but it's, it's, it's not like the water's draining out. There's always a fixed amount of space. The space stuff, in a certain sense, is held in place. If it's held in place, then you're always surrounded by the same space stuff if you're caught in the vortex, right? So now imagine, right, go back to our bathtub with the drain plug pulled. Now instead of my rubber duck, let's get a water balloon. And in the middle of that water balloon, before we put the water in it, we put a marble in it. We put in a marble, we fill it up with water, we tie it, and now we put the water balloon in here so it gets caught in the vortex, okay? Now what's happening? The water balloon's going around the drain. But if you were sitting on that marble, you see around you? The same water all the time, right? If motion is changing the space around you, is that marble moving? No. So it's simultaneously going around the drain and not moving. So because the earth has mass, it causes a vortex that keeps its space around it as it goes around the sun. So what can we do? We can simultaneously say that the Earth goes around the sun and the Earth does not move. Therefore, we can be both good Catholics, 
who uphold the word of the Pope, and we can be Copernicans. Isn't that clever? Man, that is just unbelievably sharp. It's a way to be a Catholic scientist. It is, in a certain sense, Catholic science. It is science in that it gives us a theory that accounts for observation. But its motivation is clearly religious. Now, Descartes' theory gets overthrown by another one about a generation and a half later. And the person who formulates that is Isaac Newton. Newton changes everything. He changes the definition of motion. He changes the concept of space, right? And he does all of this in a way that allows the Earth to move, in a sense that forces the Earth to move. Why isn't he getting in trouble? We're back to politics. Because he's writing in England, right? And what church is in England? Yeah, it's a trick question. <laughs> Right? So the idea here is, let's do a little bit of politics. Right? At the time Newton's writing, Catholicism treated friendly in England? Yeah, by some. Right? There's this little civil war thing happening. Right? And on one side you have those favoring the monarchy, on the other side you have those favoring parliament, right? And there just happens to be a religious divide there as well, right? The monarch, just all those who are monarchical, just happen to be pro-Catholic. Isn't that interesting that both of them just happen to favor strict structural hierarchies as opposed to the parliament? being much more Protestant, right? Both of which tend to devolve the source of knowledge. Ooh. So anything over here, anything that a Protestant can say that undermines Aristotle, undermines the word of the Pope. Hey, it's not only good science, it's good politics, right? So you get this political science. So Newton, who is virulently anti-Catholic. He's not exactly a good Protestant either. He's a Unitarian, which is a little bit of a problem because he is a professor at Trinity College. He thinks the Trinity is a hoax. And, you know, he, when he was made professor was made clear that it shows the depth of his belief that he would hold such a politically unpopular position. But he is strongly anti-Catholic. When the king tries to force a, uh, a papist candidate to receive a doctorate at Cambridge, he's the one who rallies the faculty against it. Right, so he is strongly, strongly anti-Catholic. And so he comes up with this completely different physics. Now, for Newton, right, he spends at least as much time working on theology as he does on physics. Now, Newton, Newton's a strange guy in a whole lot of ways. 
right? But he is, I mean, you know, these days we would probably put him on medication for obsessive compulsive. This guy was just, I mean, everything he did, he did full out. He was convinced that, you know, what he was doing when he was doing physics was reading the mind of God. He was convinced that there was a meeting between Moses, Pythagoras, and the ancient Egyptian uh, alchemist, uh, Hermes Trismegistus, which created a complex of knowledge that was lost, and that everything we're learning now, we're just reconstructing the lost knowledge they had back then. And he was convinced that particular Bible verses actually contained the plans to Solomon's temple, and he was trying to, I mean, he really was a Bible code believer. So when he's doing physics, the idea that in a certain sense what he's doing is Protestant physics is very much the case. In fact, we see him writing letters to prominent clergy who are putting forward his picture of the universe as proof of a present God. Now, you've got to remember, he's a Protestant. He believes that God is in the world, right? He looks at the Cartesian picture, which he thought gave rise to deism. Right? Remember, there's a deism, theism. Theism is the idea that God is here, God is acting, God is doing something. Deism is the idea that you've got a perfect God who sets up a perfect system, right? Launches it, and then he goes off, you know, plays some golf, has a beer. He's just, he's done, right? So the idea that God isn't present, he thinks, is deeply problematic, right? So when it comes to gravitation, Right? And he has this idea, right? He, he, he writes this, this equation where any two massive objects attract each other. Well, the Cartesians on the continent howled. What's doing the pulling? If I drop this, it'll fall. What's pulling down? He says it can't be space. Space, he says, is completely inert. Space remains forever fixed and immovable. Unlike Descartes' picture of the stream pulling the leaf. Well, if space is fixed and immovable, what's doing it? And he responds with three words. Hypothesis non fingo, which translates to, I frame no hypotheses. Or alternatively, it can be translated as, oh, I don't know what's doing it. All I know is, here is the way it happens. I can give you the equation that governs the behavior. What's causing it? I don't know. Now, Newton's being disingenuous. He doesn't know. He thinks he knows. He's not saying it, but he thinks he knows. And in a letter to the Reverend Richard Benjamin, he says very clearly, do not attribute to me the view that gravitation is an intrinsic property of objects. And that's the way we usually think of it, right? Because it's mass one times mass two divided by the square of the distance between them times a constant and you know, um, vector that shows that it goes inward, attractive. So if it's not intrinsic to the objects, it must be that something outside is doing it, right? And he says, but I can't tell you what the agent is. Natural or supernatural. So we just happen to have an agent that causes every massive object in the universe to attract each other simultaneously across infinite reaches of space. I wonder what 
So the idea here is that gravitation is the work of God. It is the hand of God. He says very clearly in the optics that space is the sensorium of God. How does God know everything? God's omniscience comes from the fact that space is God's sensorium. God feels everything everywhere when it happens. When I move from here to here, God's sense organ feels me. Okay? So the idea, when we look at Newtonian physics, the physics we all learned in high school, and that the people here actually learned by reading Newton, which is a wonderful thing. Okay? We were talking earlier that you're never going to find a philosophy professor who hasn't read Plato, but very few physics professors have actually read Newton. Okay? But for Newton, and what's interesting is that while we often use the Newtonian picture to sort of undeify the universe for Newton, he thought what he was doing was presenting a picture of how an active God is present in the working of the universe. Incredibly present. So, we have Descartes' Catholic science. We have Newton's Protestant science. All of a sudden, it's not looking so absurd that maybe we have Einstein's Jewish science. Right? So the idea is all of a sudden, what started as a bunch of Nazi nonsense, that was actually an honest question. So was it? Well, we always hear that Albert Einstein was not a particularly religious person. But the fact is, Albert Einstein was a deeply religious Jew who kept kosher, who followed the strict dictates of the religion when he was eight. Now, Einstein grew up in a secular Jewish household. It was a household so secular that they sent him to Catholic school. St. Peter's. Peter Shula. Now, it was mandated by the government that all schooling include a religious component. And while his family was secular, the idea of him getting Catholic religious training at school made them a little bit uneasy. And so they brought in his uncle. Right? Every secular family has that uncle who's the religious one. Right? So they brought in the uncle to basically give him personal Hebrew school. And so the uncle gave him a background in the, the rituals, the beliefs, the ways. And it was at school that he first encounters anti-Semitism. Now Einstein you know, it's interesting when some of you who have kids will identify with this, right? You know, you can have two kids, those of you who have more than one, right? If they're raised in the same house, they can be very different, right? You know, you will have some who are just, they're set and that's the way they do things and maybe they stay right around here and they have a good job and others, you know, sort of follow their own way, maybe end up up in Burlington, Vermont doing, you know, whatever it is they do, right? There are different personality types and kids just have them. Einstein had a personality type. He did not like authority. And here he had in school these professors, these teachers, who were very rigid, something 
he did not like, and who were very nationalistic, something he did not like, and who were very clearly disdainful of the Jewish kid. And so if he was going to be the Jewish kid, he was going to be the Jewish kid. And so in part because of the training from his uncle, and in part as a reaction to what he was getting at school, he became deeply religious. And he began to, you know, his family would be eating, you know, their German sausages. Nope. He'd make up little songs on the way to school to sing to himself. And he became, for a year, deeply religious. And then he became nine. What happened there? Well, a couple of things happened. Two events. One of which, he went to work with his dad. Now, his father and his uncle owned a factory manufacturing dynamos and other electronic uh, instruments. Now, while he was there, his uncle brought out a compass. Cool little thing to show a kid, right? It changed history. All of a sudden, no matter how you oriented this thing, that needle always pointed north. What was doing that? Einstein had been intuitively a sort of Cartesian mechanism. And he had thought intuitively that everything that moves must have something pushing you, pulling it, and yet here was an invisible force guiding this needle. Maybe there's something underneath what we see that is a force that creates the phenomena of the world. The second thing that happened was his family had it over a young man for dinner. Now, it was a standard convention at the time amongst Jewish families that you would have a student over for dinner once a week because students, then like now, tended to be poor, tended to need a good meal, and so they had this guy named Max Talmy who would come over and have dinner with the family. Now, you want to get in good with the parents, what do you do? You play nice with the kid. And so he would bring books for the young son, Albert, and pop science was all the rage in Germany at the time, so he would bring these science books. And he brought one on geometry. Here it was. Right? Some of you have been playing with Euclid. Right? The idea that you could start with basic, simple, obvious axioms that could not be denied, and through absolute deductive reasoning, come up with this incredible web of counterintuitive results. So what do you get? You get the idea that there are these invisible forces guiding the universe, and you get the picture that the universe is this well-ordered, logical structure. And that's what gave rise to Einstein. So all of a sudden, the theism was gone. All of a sudden, science became this god, right? And so he would go on. He was left in Germany. His father and uncle's business went bankrupt in part from not great management, in part because there was this other electronics business in Germany called Siemens. And von Siemens had a son who just happened to be married to the daughter of the Kaiser. Yeah, it wasn't going to be any good. So they left Germany and they went to Italy. But Einstein was a high school senior, so they left him in Germany to finish school. 
Einstein came to school. He gets a note from his doctor saying, Albert is suffering from nervous exhaustion. Please excuse him from the rest of the year. This guy could talk. And so he leaves Germany, renounces his citizenship, leaves. Never he swears to come back. He goes to Italy, knocks on his parents' door. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be finishing school? I got a plan. Pop, just listen, I got a plan. I'm going to go to the Technical University in Zurich. It's the best school. I don't need a diploma. I just need to pass the entrance exam. I'll take the exam. I'll pass it. I'll go. I won't need. I'll spend the time studying. He's in Italy. He's got a bicycle. He's 18 years old. He ain't studying. He takes the exam. He comes close. He doesn't pass. Pop, I got a plan. No more plans. He is set to live in Switzerland, where he's going to attend a school. He's boarding with the family. And he falls in love twice. Once with the new school. Completely different pedagogical method, where he's allowed to experiment. He's opened up to these new ideas. And they have a daughter. So between the two of them, he has a very good year. Yeah, the thing with the daughter doesn't work out so well. But he passes the exam the second time. He goes to school. Now, the ETH, which was the, the MIT of Switzerland, was a wonderful place. And he says in his autobiography that I learned from these wonderful professors. Yeah, except he didn't actually go to class very much. Yeah, he wasn't the best of students. And again, right, there's this thing with authority. And the head of the physics department was a man named Weber, who was very powerful and very scientifically conservative. Einstein had ideas. He wanted to work on this new theory of the electron. He wanted to work on this new stuff that Weber thought was just mere fad and fashion. You will do what I say. And Einstein pushed against. Now, Personality clashes often turn out badly when there's asymmetric power, especially for the person who has less power. And so Einstein finishes, passes his exit exams, and generally the idea is that he will then become an apprentice scientist under somebody. He applies to literally every single basis in all of Europe. Now, you got a kid who sends you a letter of application, wants to work under you as an assistant, becomes out of the ETH. What are you going to do? First thing you're going to do is you're going to write a letter to Weber and say, tell me about the kid. <laughs> Weber hates his guts. He gets turned down everywhere. Everywhere. Ultimately, his best friend from college comes through for him. His father, his name is Marcel Grossman. Grossman's father is well-connected in Switzerland, gets him a cushy job in Bern as a patent clerk. Now, this is a great job for him. In part because it you know, lets him do scientific -y kind of stuff. But you know, if you are a patent clerk at work, and you were sitting here, and somebody walked behind you, what would they see you doing? writing down equations and working through mathematics, right? What Einstein would do is in half a day get a full day's work done and then use his afternoons at work to do his own physics. 
And if anybody walked by, what would they see? Oh, it looks like he's working. Right? Well, now, there was actually a, a second wrinkle. At college, he fell in love again. And this one got pregnant. Einstein had a daughter. This is something we actually didn't know until about a decade ago when we found the love letters between Einstein and his first wife. Now, they weren't married. His mother hated the woman, forbade him to marry her, forbade him to even see her, and said at one point, if your little dolly gets pregnant, what will happen then? Well, she did. And in those days, that was a bad thing, especially if you were a civil servant. You couldn't have an out-of-wedlock child. And so she was sent back to Croatia. She was not Jewish. And the child, her name was Lysurl. We don't know exactly what happened. Most likely, she was adopted by a family member, because that was a standard procedure. We know she got sick. We don't know exactly what from. And we know she wasn't heard from again. So most likely she died. Which you could tell just broke his heart, but at the same time it allowed his wife now to come, or his girlfriend to come with him to Bern. They got married. They had another kid. And Einstein comes up with the theory of relativity. Wow. Productive and reproductive all at the same time. Now, is this theory that he comes up with Jewish? We know what he was reading. He was reading the German physicist, Ernst Mach. He was reading the French mathematician and physicist, Henri Poincaré. He was reading the Dutch physicist, uh, Heinrich Anton Lawrence. He was reading David Hume. None of them were Jewish. So we know what he's thinking about. And it turns out, is it Jewish in the same way that Descartes and Newton give us a religious science? No, it isn't. But there's something interesting. I'll go through this quickly. That the, the way he thinks is really interesting. Now, the theory of relativity isn't the name that he gave. He didn't want it called that. He wanted it called the theory of invariance. It was Max Planck who gave it the name theory of relativity and stuff. But the theory of invariance comes from someplace else. There's a mathematical mechanism called invariance. Now, invariance and covariance, two very quick notions. Now, if I ask you, is the water bottle to the left or right of my hand? You're going to say, to the left. This is easy. We'll get harder. I'm going to say, it's to the right. Well, which one of us is right? But we disagree with each other, right? You say left, I say right. Which one of us is right? Well, it's a covariant notion, right? That is, if any of you say to the right, you're wrong, right? So it depends on your position. So to the left of and to the right of are covariant properties. That is, they vary with your position. Now let's ask, is the water bottle between the hands? Now it doesn't matter where you are. The answer is yes. That's an invariant factor. And what Einstein does is take the concepts of Newton that were covariant, things like time and length and velocity, 
mass. Things that we thought were facts of the world. It didn't matter who you are, this bottle has a length. And it doesn't matter how fast it's going. That length is that length. And if we synchronize our watches, pretend I have a watch, right? If we synchronize our watches, those watches are going to stay synchronized no matter how I move, right? And I have a mass. And that mass is the mass I have no matter how fast I move. Yes, I'm on that treadmill. And that mass will change. Right? So the idea here is that these things are covariant according to Newton. Einstein says they're invariant. I'm sorry, the opposite way. Newton says they're invariant, they're facts of the world. Einstein says they're covariant. They change with respect to your perspective. So this bottle, for me, because it's a breath with respect to me, stays its length. For you guys, it shrinks in the direction of motion. Our watches, right? If I were to snap every second, my snap would sound a second apart to you. For me, my mass remains constant. For you, the mass increases the faster I go. This, by the way, is why nothing can exceed the speed of light. Right? It's not an engineering problem. It's not that we haven't figured it out yet. Right? The way I usually do this in the classroom, I'll pick a chair and I'll select a student, usually a, a petite woman, and I'll have her sit in the chair. And I'll say, look, if I apply a force to the chair, what happens? Well, the chair with her in it has a mass, so apply a force, you get an acceleration, right? It speeds up, right? Now, what happens if we increase? Now, I'll usually choose a rather husky young man who now sits on the lap of the young lady, always gets a laugh, okay? Now, what happens if I apply the same force? I get a hernia. The chair accelerates less, right? The same force gets less of an acceleration. Now, if Einstein is right and the mass of an object increases with its velocity, as this approaches the speed of light, the mass approaches infinity. Now, how much force would it take to accelerate something that's infinitely heavy? Well, an infinite amount of force, which would require an infinite amount of energy and we can't have an infinite amount of energy. Okay? So the idea is that nothing can go faster than the speed of light because mass increases with velocity. I'll show you how much of a nerd I was in college. We hooked a digital meter up to my buddy's car so that it showed, we hooked it into the speedometer, so that it showed how much heavier the car would be for an observer based upon the speed we were moving. <laughs> we had plenty of time to work this out on Friday nights because none of us could get dates. So the idea is that these things like length and time and mass become covariant. They change. So is everything relative then? Is everything relative to regular frame? No. Turns out not everything is relative in the theory of relativity. There is something that doesn't change. And that thing that doesn't change is called the space-time interval. Okay. Now, length will contract. Time will stretch. But it turns out that if you combine space and time in just the right way, length and duration in just the right way, no matter who you are, that number's the same. 
Now, there's a distance between them and there's a time lapse between them, right? Your state of motion will change both of those numbers, but this combined four-dimensional measure stays forever the same. The person who figured this out was a man named Hermann Minkowski. Minkowski was one of Einstein's teachers at the ETH. One of the teachers Einstein skipped a lot. Minkowski was a very shy guy who had stage fright and stammered a lot and talked very softly, and so he wasn't learning anything anyway. When Einstein's theory of relativity came out, Minkowski read it, realized how brilliant it was, and at first said, huh, this is funny, there's another physicist by the name of Albert Einstein. He said, I would not have thought Einstein capable of this, that he's a lazy dog. But it was Minkowski who realized what he was really saying. It was Minkowski in a paper called Space and Time who says that the last vestiges of separate space and time have been dismissed. Forever there will be a single four-dimensional space-time. And it's in that four-dimensional reality that we get the invariant facts of the world. Now, this is interesting. So there are facts of the world, but those realities are never glimpsed directly by human beings. We only see them at angles. We only see them from perspectives. Where do we see that sort of reason? Well, it's interesting. One place we actually see it is amongst the Talmudic scholars. Right? There's a difference between Christian theology and Jewish theology, a fundamental difference. Christian theology, they think they have the truth. Here is the interpretation. And you get very bloody wars fought over differences in interpretation of Scripture. Jews, you have what, you know, Christians call the Old Testament, and we just call Testament, right? You get the five books, right? And the idea that's the Word of God, and you read it. But then you have what the scholars really study is the Talmud. Right? The rabbis who have commentaries on it. And one rabbi says this passage means this. One rabbi says it means that. Well, who's right? Right? That's not a question we ask. The idea is that the truth is too big to fit in any one interpretation. That all of these interpretations illuminate a different aspect, a different element of the larger absolute truth. And so notice what we have here is we have a way of thinking. You know, there are absolute truths out the world. There are, right? So take the commandment, thou shalt not see. Right? It's true. Now, suppose I had a $20 bill. It's not, I'm a philosopher, I can't have $20 bills. But pretend it's one. I find a $20 bill. I put it in my pocket. Did I just steal? Well, now, if I found it in my friend's house on his dresser, yeah, I stole. If I found it in a mall parking lot on December 24th, no. Suppose I found it in a library. No. Yeah. So notice what's happening here. There is an absolute truth. Thou shalt not steal. But how it applies to reality depends upon the situation. And what you have are rabbis interpreting this in various ways. One of the ways is, well, look, if there is no hope by the person who lost the finding it again, if it's identical to all other objects around it, it's not stealing. Others say, yes. So who's right? Right? That's a Christian question. And so we have this style of thinking 
where there is an invariant truth which is glimpsed in different ways based upon the context. Now, the claim here is not cause and effect. I am not arguing that Einstein's thinking was influenced by the rabbis. But, there is a Jewish style of thought. And you do see it. And you see it not just in the theory of special relativity, you see it in the theory of general relativity, which is based around a central argument, right? Suppose you're in an elevator, right? And let's say you're going to see your psychiatrist because you have an eating disorder. Of course, you've brought your bathroom scale with you in the elevator. And so as you're going, you're going to check your weight one more time, right? Now, as you're going up to your psychiatrist, you look at what happens. Well, to your horror, you weigh more, right? But then the elevator stops, and what happens? You go back to your weight. But then the unthinkable happens. The cable snaps. And in your last second, hurling to certain death, you look down and you go happy. Because what does that scale read? Zero. Why does the scale read zero? Well, how does the scale work? You step on it, you squish the springs, and it reads your weight. If you're in the elevator going down, it's falling as fast as you are, right? So the floor is falling at the same rate. There's no squish. Scale reads zero. Now, imagine you're in a spaceship, far away from any other object. You step on a bathroom scale. What does it read? Zero. Right? Now you start your engines, and you accelerate up. You look at the bathroom scale. If you accelerate up at just the right rate, what's the bathroom scale going to read? Your weight on Earth. Right? So, you go to sleep tonight. You wake up tomorrow to find yourself in a small metallic room with music playing and a bathroom scale. Can you tell whether you're in an elevator on Earth or in a spaceship far out in space? If you get on the scale and it reads your weight, are you at rest in Earth's gravitation? Or are you in an accelerating rocket ship? If you get on and it reads zero, are you in an elevator whose cable has snapped or are you floating far away from that? Well, which one is right? Right? It's a Galicia question. Right? They're just different interpretations. So we see it there. We see it in several other places in Einstein's writing. So what we see is this way of thinking, of taking two identical ways of being, right? I mean, if you look at his famous 1905 paper, right, he takes a coil and a magnet. And if you go this way with the magnet, what's going to happen? It's going to give rise to an electrical current. Now, suppose you hold the magnet and go this way with the coil. Gives rise to a current. Now, it turns out that the laws of electrodynamics that were around back then differentiated between the two. Which one is right? Right? There are different ways of seeing it. So what we see in Einstein may not be Jewish science in the same way that Descartes and that Newton gave us theologically influenced theories of the world. But what we do see is a way of thinking, a Jewish style of thought. So 
when we look at all that stuff. And, you know, if you ever have a conversation with Jews, you're not going to be too long before a name comes up and somebody's going to say, you know, he's Jewish. <laughs> that Adam Sandler song, that's actually the way we are. There's one person, though. There's one person you never, ever have to say, you know, he's Jewish. <laughs> and that's us. And so the question is, is there anything that we can use to ground that faith, ground that pride? And I think, yeah, in some sense, we can use this style of thought and say, you know what? His theory may not be based in any way of religious belief, but there is a style of thinking. And it's not a style of thinking that you only see amongst Jews, and it's not something you see in every Jew, but it is something that we can use as a link. And what does that mean? It means we can take this Nazi idea that Einstein's science is Jewish science and go, yeah, it is. And if you can't piss off Nazis, then you know what? Life really isn't worth living. With that, I'll say thank you.